If you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 6 where we find the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to be looking, like I said, at uh, forgiveness. And this is the fifth petition um, that Jesus gives us. You know, forgiveness is a significant thing. Unforgiveness, an unforgiving heart can become really a plague in many ways. When you have an unforgiving heart, what ends up happening oftentimes is you can grow resentful towards those people that you need to forgive. You can actually allow a bitterness to kind of set in. And when resentment and bitterness have set into your heart, um, that is where you are plagued and defiled and all kinds of stuff. And it's really a difficult place. Today's petition on forgiveness is the way Jesus helps us to grasp two things. Number one is our need for forgiveness. And secondly, what Jesus is doing is reminding us that our ability to forgive others is first going to be rooted in his forgiveness of us, first and foremost. And if we're ever to endeavor in forgiving others, we need to first receive the forgiveness that Christ offers us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Jesus taught us to pray then like this in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. I love this petition, how it flows from the fourth petition. The fourth petition or prayer request was about our daily physical needs. Remember this, give us this day our daily bread. And like we learned last week in the workbook, sometimes our physical needs will be an indicator to our true spiritual needs. And so one leads to the other. You can see that with manna in the wilderness. You can see that with our daily bread and how all of that points to Jesus. And so Jesus is the true bread and he is the real spiritual need that we have. And all that came from the reality of our physical need. And so if you look at the sequence, it's really significant. We, we move from physical needs to spiritual needs. And what that's telling us is we're going to move to the most immediate and basic to the more important. Now, that sounds bizarre in our culture because we don't live in a culture that would say that our greatest need is a spiritual need. We live in a culture that will say, no, our greatest need is physical needs. We need food and shelter and we need stuff. We need it. And spiritual stuff is like if you have time for it, you can work it in. But the reality is the Bible is the exact opposite. Your spiritual need is first and foremost. And what your greatest spiritual need is, is forgiveness. You need forgiveness from God. That is the most important thing that every human being needs. Now, it sounds bizarre in our culture to say something like that. And uh, some people have asked me questions like, Okay, well, what would you provide as evidence that that's true, that our greatest need is forgiveness? And I said, the easiest thing to do is just stop and take inventory of your own life. All of us, if we're truly being honest with ourselves, you know this to be true, is we live with a kind of low-level sense of guilt all the time. There's like this sense of guilt we have that maybe we're not doing enough or we're not living up to whatever our standards are. Or, and we feel this kind of like guilt that leads to this weird kind of condemnation. But we don't know where the condemnation comes from necessarily. We just feel like something's off, something's goofy. And inevitably what ends up happening is many people who feel this guilt or condemnation, this goofiness that they can't really put their finger on, they will try to suppress that kind of feeling or they'll try to eliminate it altogether. And so you'll sign up for a Spartan race. You'll sign up for a marathon. You'll move to a different neighborhood. Um, you'll get a promotion. Maybe you abandon your spouse and get a new one. Maybe you are going to go on vacation. Maybe you decided, you know what, what I really need is we need to change churches and we need to change things up. Maybe I change my wardrobe. And we try to do all of these different things thinking that, you know what, the grass is greener on the other side. And if we can just get to that grass, that greener grass will provide the kind of stability and peace that I'm really lacking. And so there's this low level of guilt. There's this low level of condemnation. There's haunting, this feeling. Something's just off. So, I, don't know, I don't know what it is, but it's just, just kind of off, kind of weird. Now, if you have the sense of guilt and you have the sense of condemnation that something's off or whatever... It doesn't jive with our culture. It, does, it doesn't fit with our culture because our culture is saying, well, no, guilt and condemnation come when you do something wrong. And since we are the masters of our own destiny, we decide what is wrong and what is right. And so if you feel this weird feeling of guilt or shame or any kind of condemnation, what you need to do is you need to eliminate it by just changing your moral compass. Just change it. Just, just 
you know, consider things different. And so what ends up happening is self-esteem sets in. What you need to do is you need to stop beating yourself up and just realize how awesome you are. And your self-esteem will lift you up and your self-esteem will make all of those icky feelings go away. The problem with that is the secular scientists, the psychologists and whatnot, and the anthropologists, they're writing books upon books upon books about the total farce and the total lie of self-esteem. And yet nobody's reading these books. I don't know why. Instead, we're reading the books that tell you, no, if you just have high self-esteem, you'll be a great, you know, like accomplish all these things. But the reality is the data is telling us self-esteem doesn't do squat for you. It really doesn't. That's why in America, we are the, the leading nation, the number one nation in feeling good about our performance academically and economically and all that kind of stuff. And yet when it comes to our academics, all of our kids in school, you know, we ranked 60th. Now, how is it we feel that we are superior than every other nation and yet we're only like in the middle? <laughs> Self-esteem, baby. We feel good about being mediocre. But even though we're mediocre, we're actually convinced that we're number one. It doesn't work. Self-esteem won't alleviate your guilt. Self-esteem won't alleviate your low kind of sense in the back of your mind of condemnation. It won't actually cause you to perform better academically, financially, or anything else. It's a total lie. And so when people feel this kind of weirdness about I don't know, guilt or shame or they don't add up or something's off, I simply say, see, that's how you know that your spiritual needs are greater than your physical needs because not a single purchase you make will cause that feeling to go away. Something's wrong. Our greatest need above our daily provisions is God's forgiveness. And the reason why our greatest need is God's forgiveness is because we are as human beings born as rebel creatures we are rebel creatures at heart so when Jesus teaches us forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors he's teaching us one essential truth that we need to get through our minds every single one of us is a sinner every single one of us breaks God's law every single one of us is a rebel and we buck against God's authority, and we reject God's authority, and we are going to live autonomous, self-sufficient lives, come what may. I don't have enough time to get into it, but you can read Genesis 3 about how this all began. It began in a garden where Adam and Eve, where they were perfect, and God made them, and uh, they decided, you know what, your way is not the best way. Our way is the best way. And they rejected God's authority and they decided to be autonomous, self-sufficient people. And ever since then, because Adam and Eve were our representatives, ever since then, every human being who has ever lived is born in a state of sin. And they have what is called the sin nature. That doesn't sit well in American society. Because what I've just said is every single human being was born not basically good, but thoroughly evil. I hate to say it, but that's like, oh, that's wretched. How would you say that? He obviously hates children. <laughs> it's not true. I know that to be true, simply that, that every human being who's ever born is basically evil. And the reason why I know that is because I have kids of my own. <laughs> and every one of us who has kids know this to be true. When they are young, you never have to teach them how to hit and steal. They already know how to do that. They're very proficient at it. What you do need to teach children, though, is how to be good. Now, if you were born basically good by nature, why would you have to learn how to be good? In fact, if you operate naturally, and what you naturally do is hitting and stealing, wouldn't that indicate that by nature that is what you are, is a hitter and stealer? And wouldn't that then lend itself to the reality that human beings are not born basically good, but basically bad? What else are we going to say? The only other option is, oh, no, no, they're born basically good, but somehow they've learned to hit and steal. And I say, well, where do they learn that from? From their parents. That's the only option. So how many of us parents sit down with our little one-year-old and two-year-old and we teach them, here's how you steal. <laughs> and here's how you hit. 
They know that innately. They know that intuitively. Human beings, even your precious little Johnny and Susie, they are wretched little sinners. (laughs) And the way, parents, that you love your child best is at the earliest age you teach them their need for Jesus. And their need for Jesus flares up, not when you tell them how great they are, but when you tell them how needy they are for Jesus. You ever think about that? If we keep pumping sunshine in our kids' lives and keep telling them, you're amazing, you're awesome, your shelves are going to be full of trophies, all participation trophies, but nonetheless, (laughs) you're a champion and you're a hero and you're a victor. When then we say, but you need Jesus, they'll say, why do I need Jesus? Look at my trophy case. What do I need Jesus for? So Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The testimony of Scripture is basically this. There is not a single human being who lives sinlessly, but we sin because we are sinners And we are sinners by nature. That is how we are born. And because we are sinners by nature and we sin willingly, we incur the wrath of God. The justice of God, because God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, means that he cannot allow a single sin to go unpunished, nor can he allow a single sinner to not be an object of his wrath. Every human being is an object of God's wrath. You can read that in Ephesians 2. And so God warned Adam and Eve, if you choose to go your autonomous, self-sufficient way, you will die. You can read that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. In the day that you eat of the tree or eat of the fruit, you will surely die. What's amazing is when you read in Genesis chapter 5, you should read it sometime and pay attention to the last three words at the end of every chapter. And it reads, and he died. Something like 17 times. The author is trying to communicate something to you, and that is human beings die. And the reason they die is because of sin. Because God must punish sin. That's why in Ezekiel 18.4 we read this, where God says, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. And so since the time of Adam and Eve, humanity has been living in direct rebellion against God. God is our creator and God is our maker. He has all authority. He is sovereign over all things. But we have decided to buck his authority, to take matters into our own hands, to be our own autonomous, self-sufficient selves. And in so doing, we have this sense of guilt and condemnation that lurks in our lives and hangs over us, which is the evidence that, you know what? You need something. You need forgiveness. And there's nothing that you can do to alleviate that, forgive, or to alleviate that sin in your own power. The Bible frequently refers to sin as a debt. That's why Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also are forgiven our debtors. As you read in the workbook, debt in the ancient world was a very serious matter. What ended up happening is when you went into debt, they threw you into prison until you could pay. Now, we would say, why would you do that? How can a man make money if he's in prison? How's he going to pay off his debts? Well, you throw a person into prison, and guess what? Their family gets together and goes, we got to do something. We have to do something. If you are thrown into debtor's prison... The only way for you to get out of debtor's prison is if somebody on the outside can get you out. And if sin is a debt, and we all have sinned, then we're all in spiritual debtor's prison. Which means we don't have the freedom or the ability to actually get ourselves out of this prison. We are utterly dependent on somebody out on the outside to get us out. We need somebody on the outside who can break us out, who can pay our debts. Now, if you think about it, If we're living in this spiritual debt in which we are imprisoned, we lack the power and we lack the ability to get ourselves out and our only hope is somebody on the outside can break us out, we're in a heap of trouble. 
Because every human being we know and every human being that has ever lived on planet Earth is also in prison. So who exactly is left on the outside to get us out? And at this very moment in walks Jesus Christ. Because it is humanity's rebellion against God that needs to be forgiven. And therefore, we need someone on the outside who is truly human. But at the same time, sin, yes, is a transgression against God. It's breaking God's law. But it's also this. We are actually rebelling against God himself. We are saying God's majesty and God's glory is not worth my obedience. And so we are going against the infinite worth of God. And because we're going against the infinite worth of God, we are accruing an infinite death. And if we are accruing an infinite death, then that means that we need someone on the outside who is of infinite worth, who has the ability to take upon himself the infinite death, or infinite curse, the infinite debt, uh, debt. And in order for that infinite debt to be paid, we need somebody who has infinite resources. So in this spiritual prison, our only hope is somebody on the outside to get us out, but they must be human and yet without sin, and they must be infinitely worthy that can take upon the infinite debt and have infinite resources to pay that infinite debt. In walks Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ alone is the only person who can get us out of spiritual debtor's prison. Because Jesus is the only human being who has ever lived who has never sinned. And yet at the same time, Jesus being truly human is also truly God. And being truly God, he is infinitely worthy. And at his disposal is infinite resources. So he can pay the infinite debt with his infinite resources. And yet he himself is also infinite. So he can take the infinite wrath of God upon himself and satisfy it completely. Our only hope of ever getting out of spiritual debtor's prison is Jesus Christ alone. And so we read Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you, where Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses. And then he says, but God made alive together with him. So God has made you alive together with Jesus. How? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now look at the next word in verse 14. It's by, and this indicates to us how our trespasses are Forgiven. It is by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God set aside, set this aside, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there was a record of debt that stands against all of us, and the legal demand of that debt is death. So there is a debt of sin against all of us, and the legal demand of that debt is that we die. And yet what happens is God sets this legal demand and the debt aside, and how he does so is by nailing it to the cross. God did not nail a thing to the cross. God nailed his son to the cross. So Jesus, his own son, is how the record of debt that stood against us is canceled and how the legal demand of death is also canceled. It is in Jesus Christ being crucified on a Roman cross that our debt is paid and death is no more. Now, how do we know that this payment is sufficient? How do we know that Jesus' life, sinless life, and his death on the cross is actually enough to get us out of debtor's prison, spiritual debtor's prison? How do we know that there's, that's enough? How do you know Jesus did it all? How do you know he paid it all? And the answer is the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, and if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you know what? Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. We oftentimes say Jesus died for the forgiveness of sins, and that's absolutely true, but it's not the complete story. If Jesus died for our sins on on the cross, but he did not rise from the dead, we're still going to hell. 
That's why Romans 4.25, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, that is crucifixion language, and he was raised for our justification. You need both. When you and I ever write a check and we take it somewhere and we're buying something and they take it and they you know, put it in the little cash register or whatever and we leave with our goods and we're like, yay. We have to wait a day or two, 24 hours, 48 hours until that check clears. And so we look at our online banking and we wait for that check to clear. Jesus by his own blood, wrote the check to get us out of debt. And then we waited three agonizing days to know whether or not that check cleared. And on Easter morning, surprise, the grave is empty. The debt is paid. And you now owe nothing. He is risen. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the good news of forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. And that good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins to get us out of spiritual debtor's prison must be received by faith and repentance. Jesus, when he came to earth, he was proclaiming about the kingdom of God. And when he came proclaiming about the kingdom of God, like in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he says, the kingdom of God is here. And then he commands a response. He says, repent and believe. Kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe. And so the question is, okay, if Jesus lived, died, and rose again for the justification of sinners to get us out from hell and the wrath of God for the forgiveness of sins, if he did all that, how do I actually receive how do I actually have that applied on my account, the debt fully paid? And the answer is through repentance and faith. That is how you receive it, is through repentance and faith. You see, Jesus' announcement that the kingdom of God is here, therefore there's a response that must happen, which is repent and believe. When he rose from the dead, he met his disciples and he told them what their commissioning was, what they needed to go do. He says this in Luke 24, verse 46 to 48. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So he said in the Old Testament, everything that I did was written about. Verse 47, and that, the second thing, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus comes to the disciples and says, fellas, here's the thing. What I did, the whole Old Testament was predicting. And now that I've accomplished everything that God promised to be accomplished, you now are going to go out starting from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and you're going to go proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in my name. Now go. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. And, of course, Acts 1.8, we remember that the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, giving them power to become witnesses among the nations. And what were they witnessing to? The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what did they proclaim? That through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you will repent and believe, you can be forgiven of sins and be liberated from spiritual debtor's prison. Now, did the disciples actually take Jesus seriously? Did they take this commissioning? And the answer is absolutely. You can read in Acts chapter 2, where Jesus, or excuse me, where the Apostle Peter stands up and preaches the very first Christian sermon. In the very first Christian sermon, he preaches about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And when it says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They felt conviction, they felt the guilt and condemnation. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said, you're going to go and you're going to preach repentance. Jesus said in Luke 11:3, unless you repent, you will perish. The apostle Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. He calls the people to repentance. What is repentance? You ever ask yourself that question? I know I have. Repentance, according to Pastor Sam Storms, who's an Oklahoma City pastor, he says, repentance is this. It's a heartfelt conviction of sin 
That's why the, the men said, or the people there said, brothers, what shall we do? Because they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of sin. He says, it's a contrition over the offense to God. You feel guilt and shame for having offended God. And it is a turning away from your sinful way of life and a turning towards a God-honoring way of life. Conviction of sin, contrition over sin, turning from your sin, and instead turning to God. That's repentance. And so in Solomon's portico in Acts chapter 3, the people gather together and Peter once again opens his mouth and he preaches in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back. Why? So that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. We're all searching for greener pastures, greener grass. And Jesus told the disciples, go and preach repentance. Peter stands up and preaches repentance and says, the greener grass, what you really want is refreshment. And that refreshment is going to come through repentance. It's not greener grass. It's not bigger houses. It's not better job opportunities. What you're searching for is liberation from your guilt and condemnation. And that refreshment can only come through repentance. So repent, therefore. And when the Apostle Paul recounts to King Agrippa his, his call to be a missionary among the Gentiles in Acts chapter 26, we read how the, even the Apostle Paul was preaching repentance. Jesus told him, rise and stand upon your feet, for I appear to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant, to witness to the things in which you have seen me, to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And here's what Paul was supposed to do, verse 18. Through his preaching, he is to open their eyes so that they may turn, repentance, from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And so Paul says, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from the power of Satan to God, that kind of thing, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So what we learn from this is that forgiveness of sins, being released from the spiritual debtor's prison, is only going to come through repentance. Repentance, therefore, is the instrument of forgiveness, which means Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection has done everything which is sufficiently necessary to release us from that spiritual bondage. But we need to know how do we actually have that applied to us and receive it. And the connection between what Jesus has done and its application to us is the instrument of repentance. Unless you repent, you will not have the work of Jesus applied to you. But if you remember what Jesus said when he was declaring things, it was not just repentance. It was also repent and believe. There's also faith. And faith is the instrument to salvation. Therefore, you cannot have faith in Jesus and not be repentant. Neither can you have repentance but not faith in Jesus. You must repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. Ephesians 2.8, notice the prepositions. I know it's grammar, but look for the prepositions. That is the, the situation between verbs and nouns and things like that. And here's what Paul says, verse 8. For by, first preposition, for by grace. That means that is the cause, that is the animator, that is the catalyst. By grace, that is the power, so it's grace. Paul says you have been saved, so it's God's grace that saves you. But then look at the next preposition, through faith, through faith. So salvation comes by grace, but it comes to you through faith. Faith is the instrument, but God's grace is the cause. And that's why Paul says it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. 
If anyone thinks that the instrumentation of faith and repentance is a work, you don't understand Scripture properly. What Jesus has done in his life, death, and resurrection is secured for all time all, the, all that was necessary in order to redeem sinners from the wrath of God. But in order for that, app, that work to be applied to sinners, they must use God's given, commanded instrument, which is faith and repentance, in order to have that applied to them. Neither faith nor repentance is a work. It is the proper instrument that God has ordained for us to be saved. So because we're all rebels, and by the way, that's the difference between being Catholic and Protestant. Just in case anyone's wondering, I'm Protestant. Because we're all rebels against our God who is a creator, because we are all spiritually imprisoned, we cannot escape on our own. Because we need someone on the outside who is a human being and yet without sin, and someone on the outside who is infinitely worthy, infinite resources at his disposal, and yet is infinite himself to take upon an infinite death, in walks Jesus Christ. By his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus sets sinners free. This is not owing to ourselves or our greatness or our work or our efforts. It's owing all to God's grace so that if we will repent of our sins and believe in the gospel, that we will in fact be liberated and set free from spiritual debtor's prison. So if you today will repent and believe, you will be forgiven of your sins. You will receive salvation. You will be set free from condemnation. God will grant you the Holy Spirit. And when you are granted the Holy Spirit and you receive that forgiveness, there are certain expectations that God has for us, which is forgiven people forgive. If you have so been forgiven, then God's expectation is then you will go and do likewise. You will forgive others as you have been forgiven. We read this in Colossians 3 where Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Now watch this. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. In other words... The forgiveness we receive from God in Jesus Christ serves as the pattern for how we go about forgiving others. Put it more plainly, the only hope we have of ever being people who actually forgive other people from the heart is if we are first recipients of God's forgiveness. Because receiving God's forgiveness first and foremost then serves as the catalyst and the pattern and provides the actual power that we need in order to be people who are actually forgiving those around us. Apart from receiving that forgiveness, we will not have what we need in order to forgive. And what I would say is simply this. The gospel itself is not only the power for salvation, which is the reception of forgiveness, but the gospel itself is also the power for sanctification. It's the power that we receive from God in order to live the lives that God has asked us to live. Without the gospel, we cannot be forgiving people. Neither can we be forgiven. Somebody's asked me, Phil, you talk about the gospel all the time. Like, when are we going to talk about something else? Never. The gospel is all about what God has done in Jesus Christ for our life, liberty, and, and everything. Why would I want to talk about anything else? Why would I tell you hilarious 10-minute long stories about my workout routine or something like that? What, what kind of ridiculous nonsense is that? Wouldn't it be better served to talk about the one person in all the universe who actually can transform your life? It ain't me. It's Jesus. Jesus is the center and the crown jewel of the gospel. When we think about the gospel, what we'll begin to understand is the gospel is essential for forgiveness. And the reason is this. When we understand the gospel, it produces an emotional humility in us that you can't find anywhere else. And secondly, it provides an emotional acceptance and love that you can't find anywhere else. And it does so simultaneously. I always tell pastors and people I know, I said, if you're ever going to preach the gospel, it's always going to be two-pronged. You guys know what a two-pronged fork is? My barbecuers know what's up. 
stab that hunk of meat in the side and flip that baby over. If you only have a skewer, you stab the meat, you lift it up, that thing will just spin. (laughs) You need a two-prong right in the meat, flip that baby over. And the two prongs of the gospel is, is this. You are a wretched sinner, and yet you are more loved than you ever dared or dreamed possible. And if you only preach condemnation, that's not gospel. And if you only preach God's love, that's not gospel. You got to have both because I want to be flipped over from death to life. So we have to start out by understanding how the gospel brings us to a place of humility. And when we understand how the gospel brings us to a place of humility, we will be more understanding of how we have been forgiven and also we will be supplied what we need in order to forgive others. And when you think about it, the gospel does greatly humble us. Think about it. The gospel begins by reminding you that you were born a rebel sinner. You do not love God. You hate God. You want to live an autonomous, self-sufficient life. You are under the wrath of God, and you will incur the condemnation of God in a place called hell. There's nothing you can do about it in your own power. You are hell-bound. What? (laughs) That... Nobody ever listens to that kind of thing and go, man, awesome. That that fires me up. Thanks. You don't leave that kind of announcement very perky. What it does, that kind of truth produces emotional humility in you. It actually drives you to your knees. More than that, it drives you to your face. It puts you in the dirt It reminds you that you are not a good person. You do not have anything worthwhile in you that would compel God to save you at all. The emotional humility of the gospel, it causes you to not feel superior to others because you and everyone else are wretched sinners, (laughs) hell-deserving, hell-bound, rotten scoundrels, all of us. How in the world then, hearing that news, will you ever have in your mind, yeah, but I feel really superior to somebody else. You're all equally condemned. And so we're driven to our faces. How this works in, hum- in forgiveness is this, if you think about it. When someone hurts you, the, one of the first things that we forget in our pain is our own sinfulness. Whenever someone hurts us, it's understandable. We just are consumed with our own pain, and we never get to the point where we're like, oh, yes, they've pained me, but, yes, I'm a filthy, rotten sinner. So we never get to that point. We stay in this kind of evaluative kind of state where we're looking at them and nitpicking everything they ever did to hurt us, and we're focusing on our pain so much that we become blinded because that becomes the permanent vantage point of the world. All we can think about is our own pain, and about how everyone pains us. Therefore, we are the victim and everyone else is the oppressors. And in that position, we could never possibly forgive anybody. Brian Jones, who's a pastor, he wrote in his book called Getting Rid of the Gorilla, which is a book about struggling to forgive others. He says, someone once said that in times of war, the first casualty is truth. I don't know much about war, but I've spent a lot of time with the unforgiving heart. And when someone wrestles with an unforgiving heart, the first casualty usually is repentance. Repentance means we acknowledge before God that we are no more moral than that person, no more, no matter how deeply he or she hurts you. The gospel humbles us by reminding us of who we actually are. We are born sinful rebels under the condemnation of God, fully deserving of hell, and so is every other human being. So when we get the idea in our minds, I'm superior to the person that hurt me, I would never do that. We have to stop and realize you may not have done that yet, but you are very much capable. The reason I say that is because in pastoral counseling, I sit with people and we weep. I hold hands with these folks. We cry together. I lead them in a prayer of confession and repentance. And inevitably, the unfaithful husband or the unfaithful wife will look me in the eyes and say, Pastor Phil, I can't believe I did this. I never thought this would ever happen. Of course. None of us sitting here ever think we are ever capable of ever doing anything so evil as like cheating on our spouse or 
or swindling someone or anything like that. We don't think we're capable of it. But the gospel humbles us by telling us, no, 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 you very much so are capable of that. You are capable. And so you can't feel superior to others. And so we read 1 John 1, 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How humbling is that? If you don't acknowledge your sin, you are a liar and you're a deceived person. Now, if I just left us there, that's no hope at all. There's no gospel in this. This is only bad news. And so what we need now is we need our hearts to hear the good news. But you have to understand what makes the good news good is the bad news that precedes it. And if we abandon the bad news, it diminishes the good news. So we need to feel the bad news in order to appreciate more fully the good news when it comes. And what is that good news? The good news is, yes, you are driven to the dust in humility. You are a hell-bound sinner rightly underneath the, the judgment and condemnation of God. But in love, God sent his one and only son to come and rescue you, the one person outside of that spiritual debtor's prison who is truly human without sin and yet is infinite in every way to actually liberate you from this bondage. And Jesus, in his tenderness and love and affection for you, has not only seen you wallowing in your own filth and dirt, but he has scooped you up into his own arms and he has lifted you to your feet. He has cleansed you of your sin and washed you with pure water. And so you are white as snow. But more than that, Jesus then extending that tender, affectionate hand lifts you beyond even the earthly and seats you in the heavenly places, according to Colossians chapter 3, where you are seated with Christ and you experience forgiveness and you are washed anew and you have absolute affection from God because you are adopted by him, welcomed fully into his family and in that place you are exalted to the highest of heavens. And when you have that kind of thought, yes, I'm a wretched, just horrible sinner and I am just humble before God. I deserve hell and yet God in his mercy has lifted me up in Jesus Christ and has fully incorporated me into his family. He will never reject me. I will never be lost. Jesus says no one can pluck me, pluck me out of his hands. I believe that I'm irrevocably forever and ever truly and affectionately his. When you have that, when you have that emotional acceptance and love, you have all the motivation and all the emotional capital to reach out to someone who has offended you and pained you, and you can forgive. We seldom forgive because we lack the emotional capital to do what is necessary to forgive from the heart. When we have been perpetually rejected, perpetually unloved, perpetually alienated, perpetually hated, and, and, and just totally bypassed, we begin to think no one loves us, no one cares, and we become very, very needy people. And we won't forgive other people because we are just so preoccupied with our own needs for acceptance and love. But in the gospel, you get all of the acceptance of God Almighty and all of the love of God is poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit, as Romans 5 says. And you are filled with acceptance and love that you never even thought possible. You're granted the emotional capital so you can see the people who have pained you and you can go to them motivated sufficiently and having the emotion that you need to do it. You can actually forgive people from the heart. And that all comes from the gospel. Simultaneously. I am humble, and yet I am exalted to the highest of heavens. I have everything I need. And if you repent and believe, as the scriptures say, you are then called a disciple. And when you are a disciple, you are a follower of Jesus, which means you do what Jesus commands. And Jesus has commanded that we forgive. But remember I talked about last week the quote from John Piper. God never commands an emotion where he does not also provide by way of truth and promise the very emotion that he is commanding. So when God says, forgive from the heart, emotion, God also provides the truths and the promises to make that possible. 
and the truths and the promises that make forgiveness from the heart possible is none other than the gospel. And so we can forgive because God in Christ has forgiven us. And when we don't forgive, we invite bitterness and resentment and it can fester and it can defile us. And brothers and sisters, this even happens in the church. I've known of far too many people who have said something like this. The church hurt me. A pastor hurt me. A sermon hurt me. A person in the church hurt me. And so what they do, I mean, drive down Lone Tree. How many churches are here in Brentwood and Antioch? If you have all these churches and somebody at this particular church hurts you, then easy. Here's how you resolve it. Just go to the other church. You don't have to worry about forgiveness. You don't have to worry about reconciliation. You don't have to worry about any of that really uncomfortable stuff. And you can just go to the next church. And when you go to the next church, you bring all your resentment and all your bitterness with you. And all your unresolved forgiveness issues with you. And that's why Hebrews 12, 14, the author writes, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. I don't think people realize the grass isn't always greener at the next church. You're taking your bitterness with you. And that bitterness is going to defile not only yourself, but it's going to defile the next group of people that you worship with at your next church. And that bitterness and that unforgiving heart will follow you in every church you go to. Why, why not seek forgiveness? Why not seek reconciliation? Why not put the gospel on display by forgiving your brothers and sisters and by receiving forgiveness? That seems to me a better way. But then again, C.S. Lewis writes this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until you have something to forgive. Forgiveness is hard. I would say forgiveness is impossible apart from the gospel. So what I want to do super quickly is I want to offer you some help on this forgiveness issue. I cannot give you a one-size-fits-all path to forgiveness. If anyone offers you a one-size-fits-all how to forgive somebody, they're lying. In our church, there's people who have been physically, sexually, and emotionally abused since childhood, and there's people in our congregation that are really, really sensitive, and so if you just walk too fastly by them, they'll be super offended. And if you look at those kinds of pains, I've had a lifelong abuse, or somebody walked past me too quickly for my liking, those are two different kind of pains, you know what I'm saying? And for me to sit here as a pastor and say, oh, here's how you resolve that pain. Are you kidding me? Wisdom would tell us one needs one kind of thing and the other needs another kind of thing. So I'm not going to humiliate anyone or, or be unwise and foolish to suggest that there's a one-size-fits-all of forgiveness. Instead, what I want to do is this. Let you know that there's two forgiveness myths that we need to debunk. First, the forgiveness myth that forgiveness is the same as reconciliation. It is not. Forgiveness is something you personally do, but reconciliation requires two parties. Forgiveness is commanded in Scripture, whereas reconciliation is commanded to be pursued, but is not guaranteed. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As far as it depends on you, pursue forgiveness and, and reconciliation. As far as it depends on you, pursue it. But understand, it may not be possible. The person who hurts you, may be, they may be dead. How do you reconcile with a dead person? You can't. So forgiveness is commanded. Reconciliation is commanded to be pursued, but they're not the same. Sometimes it's wise and good that you forgive and refrain from reconciliation. Second myth is our forgiveness from God is conditional upon our forgiving others. As you can read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. At first glance, it sounds like Jesus says, I'll forgive, I'm waiting in heaven. 
I'll forgive you as soon as you forgive them. It's kind of like how we parent our kids. You better say sorry or else no dessert for you. That's not what Jesus is doing. Dr. Al Mohler says this, good works always accompany true salvation. Good works always accompanies true salvation. But good works are the fruit of salvation, not its root. In other words, good works does not cause salvation, but salvation causes good works. And one of the good works of salvation is forgiveness. And so Jesus is telling us, if you want an indicator as to whether or not you have received forgiveness, simply look at your life and ask yourself the question, are you willing and able to forgive others? And if the answer is no, then you have not yet experienced forgiveness for yourself. And therefore, you forgiving others or you not forgiving others is an indication of whether or not God has forgiven you. And then the last thing I want to do is this. How do you pursue forgiveness? Two quick things. Number one, rehearse the gospel. You got to rehearse the gospel. We all have bad memories. We sometimes forget who we are in God's sight. We are wretched sinners. And yet at the same time, through Christ, or in Christ, through faith and repentance, Jesus adopts us as and gives us forgiveness, and we are his own. We have to rehearse that day by day, day by day, day by day. I had a debt I could not pay, and Jesus has paid it all. Day by day. And the other one is dependent prayer. If we pursue dependent prayer, rehearsing the gospel, as Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors, we will go a long way in working towards forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, your pains are deep and they're multifaceted. And in the church our size, there's no one size fits all. But I tell you what, Jesus is big enough. The gospel is great enough. The grace of God is powerful enough. And the mercy of God is sufficient enough. And God can do it. And before we end our, our, our time today, I want to just say this. We're going to end it without quoting the Lord's Prayer. If you're here today, and two things. If you're here today as a Christian, and you know that you have unforgiveness in your heart, and you want to be forgiving, and you want prayer, dependent prayer, you want me to pray for you, or you want to come to the prayer room. Or secondly, if you're not yet a Christian, and you've understood your need for Jesus, and you want to repent and believe today, then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to stand wherever you're at. Just stand up, and I'm going to pray for you, that God will give you forgiveness through faith and repentance, or that you will be emboldened through the gospel to go and forgive others. And I know for a fact, there's a lot of us in here who need both. Father, would you embolden us? Because there is so much unforgiveness in our hearts that we probably don't even realize that we need you to help us in forgiving others. So God, would you grant grace to all those who need it? Would you grant them reminders of the gospel that they should be emotionally humble and yet emotionally accepted in love? And that all comes because of Jesus Christ. So God, equip them with all that they need to forgive as they ought to forgive. And God, for those who are here who know their need of Jesus, that their greatest spiritual need is to be forgiven of their sins so that they would not experience the wrath of God, would you grant them grace and mercy? And God, would you forgive them of their sins? God, we thank you for your ever-present help in our time of need. Thank you for how you love us. Thank you for how you nurture us. Thank you for your tenderness and your affections for us. Thank you, God. And so now we ask, as we leave here, help us to be forgiving people because we are a people who are forgiven. All for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.